0: This is another iRaw podcast. We can, we should be prioritizing sweet, sociable, sound dogs above confirmation, above breed, above looks.
1: Hey, I'm Katya. I am a writer and a life coach for animal people. And I'm Jenny. I'm the founder of Better Together Dog Rescue. And together, we are your hosts here at The Animal That Changed You. We are moms of both humans and dogs who want to advocate for animals, support our animal friends, and seek out ways to make a difference. So if you love animals, you have come to the right place.
2: This show is for you.
1: Hi, Tatsy listeners. It's Jenny and Katia here. And before we get into today's episode, we just wanted to do a little side bit to let you know that although the episode is very heavily focused on rescue dogs, it's important for Katya and I to say that this also pertains to the breeding world as well, which we'll be talking about on a future episode. So stay tuned for that. But Katya, pipe in here and explain why it's so important to us.
2: Yeah. Well, first of all, you had a great, cute name for the Tatsy listeners, Tatsies. Tatsies. I just want to give you some love for that, Jenny. Thank you. And yeah, Tatsies. Now I'm just gonna like throw it around, like Tatsies. What's up? We just wanted to come on here and say that our guest today is steeped, like Jenny said, she's steeped in the shelter world. So her data and observations and knowledge comes from experience with animal shelters and and rescue dogs. But it's important for us to mention that some of the things that she has seen trend-wise maybe aren't things that we like. That doesn't mean they're not true. And she is not steeped in the breeding world. So she doesn't speak to that, but we have found that. It is equally true in that world as well. And
1: you will know what we mean. Now you're so like in suspense. Have to listen. Like you have to listen <laughs> so that you know what we're talking about. But we just wanted to be fair exactly. to our rescue, our rescue dogs, who we adore so much. That's what we're in it for. It's just important for us to let you know that also in this conversation, you know, breeding breeders in the back of your mind as well with this trend that we'll be talking about. And enjoy the episode. Yeah, we love you guys and we love your animals.
2: Oh my God. I'm very excited, Jenny. I mean, I say this at the top of every episode,
1: but like, you know
2: that I'm really excited.
1: (laughs) I know that you're really excited. You have been talking about this
2: forever. And I'm super
1: excited too. Yeah.
2: I mean, anyone who will listen, the mailman's like, can I go? And I'm like, but Sue Sternberg is coming on the
1: podcast. <laughs> like, yeah. ma'am, ma'am. <laughs> so I need yeah. to learn today. And I'm so excited to learn. Do like you, this is what I need in my life today.
2: I was gonna say, do you
1: feel like you're just gonna be taking notes? Pretty much taking notes. I need it. I mean, there are things that I'm not great at. And I am always open, always open, especially with, you know, hopefully having my own building in the future. I need to know all about dogs, animals, training, assessments. Like it's so important. I want to be the best I can be at it.
0: I'm in the club, right? Yeah. <laughs> <I'm>
1: the
2: <best. laughs> For our listeners, before we jump in, I just want to say Sue Sternberg has been working in shelters and as a dog trainer, I think since 1980s. Is that correct, Sue?
0: 1981.
2: Yeah. Wow. Okay. Wow. 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 She has a book assessing aggression thresholds in dogs. She has an, a whole assessment protocol for understanding how to read dogs, I guess, uh, how mm-hmm. to tell best homes. Is that correct? Is that yeah. how you say it? Yeah. And what what drew me to Sue's work was her honesty and ability to look at both sides of something, all sides of something. And I know that you know us animal lovers sometimes like our side that defends Mm -hmm. what we feel about animals. So I find that very rare. And Sue, Jenny, and I really want to know if there's an animal who's changed you before we even dive into your work.
0: Oh God, Uh, um, any particular animal? No, I feel. I mean, I've had. I think I've had something like over 25 dogs so far in my lifetime. You know, and that that includes the dogs that I was born into the household with and dogs I had as a child and I did I adopted probably a handful of seniors that I knew weren't going to last very long. So I did have some turnover there but um I've had a lot of dogs and certainly they've all taught me something huge. Um, but not one of them taught me any more than the other.
1: Well, that's beautiful. And, and also similar to me. I mean, yeah. I have had many foster dogs. I have my own three current dogs, and then my previous dog and my childhood dog. And each of yeah. them has taught me something.
0: Yeah.
1: Every single one of them has yeah. made an impact on my life in one way or another. So I understand that. And I think that's also really beautiful. Yeah. That's Elvis, true. Elvis, the Elvis also impacted you, Jenny, your mouse. Was his name. Yes, tiny Elvis as well. And his short life with me left an imprint. Yeah, and he sure did. Yeah. He sure did.
0: Elvis. That's great. That's a yeah. Name a mouse.
1: Names named by my 11 year old son. So oh, Those are yeah. people to
0: name anything. <laughs> uh.
2: <laughs> so
1: how did you start
2: this work? How did you. What brought you into working with animals and and, assess, and, and and not only assessing, but especially in the shelter world, which is Jenny and I's favorite place to be, oddly, the animal yeah. shelter. But I'm with you. Um well I
0: I um my father was an incredible dog lover and for entertainment on the weekends when I was very young, we grew up in New York City, and he would take um me and my sister to Dog Hill, which was in Central Park, and it was the first dog park, official kind of, no, non-official. It was unfenced, but it's where everyone went on weekends to hang out with their dogs. And we went there as a form of entertainment and thrill. And we, we had dogs always growing up. So I by the age of eight, I had read every dog book in the school library. I could name all of the AKC dog breeds. I think there were 125 at that time. And I remember saying out loud, I said out loud to myself in the dog book section of my library, all alone, I said, I'm going to be a dog trainer.
2: Mm. So
0: I knew early on that I would want to do something with with animals. And then um, when I was 18, I dropped out of college full-time and I started going part-time and I, I got a day job working for a veterinarian and a weekend job working at an animal shelter in Western Massachusetts. And then I was also dog training. I was taking my own dogs to classes. And then the instructor asked if I would want to stay and assist in the more advanced classes. So I was hooked.
2: Yeah. Um,
0: so there I was straddling the shelter world and the dog training world. And in 1981, the two had never met. Like if you were a dog trainer, you had nothing to do with the animal shelter world. And if you were in an animal shelter, you knew nothing about training.
2: So, wow.
0: Yeah. It was an amazing time. You were a pioneer. I was just at the right place at the right time. <laughs> I,
2: <think. laughs> I mean, yeah, Jenny and I really like to talk about dogs, which is I think why we're like, tell us everything. But, <laughs> uh, I know that is really interesting. I guess I never thought like of that time before trainers yeah. were going into shelters or shelters yeah. were, you know, like that, that those bridges had been built.
0: Yeah. They were, they were really completely separated. I remember at the kennel club, cause you trained at the kennel club. It was all group classes. There were in 1981, there were no crates and there were no private trainers. There was like one private trainer around and it wasn't behavior consulting. You know, no one had separated behavior from training, And, you know, in the shelter, we knew nothing uh, about, there was really not a lot of knowledge about training. And the people at the Kennel Club all had purebreds because, you know, the only type of dog sport was for registered purebreds. I don't even think there was an indefinite listing privilege then through the American Kennel Club, or maybe there was, and that was a way you could you could send photos and say that you thought your dog was a purebred, but had no papers. And that would allow you to do some dog sports. But so it was very, it was a very separate field. It was also, it was a, it was such a different time. So this is uh, Western Massachusetts. And I, rem- I remember as a dog control officer, I got a call about a stray dog. Because I was also a dog control officer in Shootsbury, uh, Massachusetts, on the west side of the Quabbin. And uh, so I got a call, went out, and I picked up a stray and the stray was uh uh intact female probably about a year and a half of a breed that was pretty rare and i looked at the dog and and i remember i brought her to the kennel club that night to show a couple of friends and i was like oh, look what i found <laughs> you're like oh my god there must be a breeder like looking for her and i was like oh you know yeah and uh she was a rottweiler uh, oh. yeah and i remember i Remember, uh, finding? uh I, I found a Rottweiler rescue who were just so happy to take her when she hadn't been claimed. So that's like, can I remember a time before Rottweilers were
2: incredibly popular? Yeah. Like, right. Were yeah. things better or worse then in terms of shelters and numbers? And like, was it better or was it worse? Because they didn't have the information, but
0: Yeah. So I don't know. It's, you know, the, the definitions of better or worse are really murky, right? So like, let's dive into some controversy. So maybe, maybe the communities were a little better off because there was so many more dogs. So there's much more dog overpopulation. And so shelters were much more overwhelmed, exponentially more overwhelmed with pop, you know, with dogs and puppies. And so shelters had to make decisions and they were making decisions on euthanasia and placement based, you know, on numbers, based on uh, length of stay on time and and space. And nobody really was talking about temperament and you almost, you did have to, but you almost didn't have to because there was in the population of incoming dogs in the, in the early eighties, the, of the three, Categories of temperament of uh, uh, of dogs. So the if if you if you boil dogs down into these three gross categories, gross not meaning disgusting, but gross meaning sort of like big. Um, <laughs> there are the dangerous temperaments, right? Dangerous dogs for whom you know only on TV could you get anyone who could remotely live successfully with the dog.
2: Uh-huh.
0: The good dogs, uh, quote unquote, good dogs who are basically dogs who are so far away from aggression in every category that they could live with anyone of any experience with any number of kids in any environment and likely be successful. So the good dogs, the dangerous dogs, and then the middle dogs, the middle category is of course the borderline gray area dogs who aren't quite dangerous and, and they're not good in all situations. And they need just the right person, just the right environment and some work to be successful. So back in the eighties, we still had a very large portion of good dogs and a smaller portion of borderline and an even smaller portion of dangerous. And so, you know, even without assessments, the public self-selects the most adoptable dogs. They 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 do. They go in and they will always select the friendliest if there's a friendly one to be had. And the only way I can say that with some assurance is that uh, in the United States, there are some shelters where somebody comes in, says they want to adopt, but they have to hold the dog till it gets till he or she gets spayed or neutered. So what that means is you can see in large animal control facilities dogs who have an adoption pending, but they're being held. So you still get to see them. And what you find in these very large animal shelters, open admission that the dogs who are the sweetest and most wonderful all have the adoption pendling. Like they're the first to be selected, which is, it's very interesting. So, but in the 80s, if there's a good portion of good ones and a smaller of borderline and even smaller of dangerous, the, the people are getting fairly nice dogs, even with no knowledge on either end.
2: Mm -hmm. And
0: the community is pretty safe from dangerous dogs, because this shelter is going to make ruthless decisions. They're absolutely going to euthanize the dogs that they can't even do a medical exam on, right? So maybe back then, the communities were safer, but bad decisions were still being made in terms of, you know, random decisions for life and death. And, And now we have much less dogs overall, like drastically, exponentially fewer dogs coming into our shelters and even fewer being euthanized, which is a good thing if the dogs are safe and uh, safe and can thrive in today's society. And many of the dogs are not safe. There's a much higher portion of dangerous for the biggest category of borderline dogs now, and only a very small percentage of shelters still have any amount of really good dogs. And usually those are the rural, rural Southern shelters with no resources, still have good dogs. So
1: I have a few things to say. Yeah. One, shout out to Western Mass. Cause that's where I am. shoots <laughs> Shootsbury next town over. where my family lives. Oh. So, yeah, I love that. Two, my eight-year-old brings home every library book that has to do with animals. Um, so you just gave me like massive hope that he's going to follow in my footsteps in some form because uh, that's my favorite thing. And then also like the you just saying that you found this Rottweiler and that the rescue was like so excited to get them just blows my mind because right now we can't find anybody to take even a purebred Stray or rescue that we have, it's just so over full. Yeah. That it's like they can't take even the purebreds, let alone the ones that are mixed with malinois or Rottweiler or or something like that. And I was just like, oh my God, to be back in the 80s when, like, but there were people who could take them in. I was just dealing with such a struggle. Yeah.
2: have a follow-up on that because Sue said we have far less dogs coming in so I'm wondering if it's and and this is I mean look we all love animals here so I just want to put that blanket over all the words that are being said Um, I'd like we need to say it obviously this is fun for us to talk about (laughs) right but if there's less animals coming in and rescues are so overwhelmed I'm wondering is it is it because our resources are focusing so heavily on borderline gray dogs and quote-unquote dangerous dogs that we rescues can't take in other dogs or more gray or more quote-unquote dangerous dogs? That's one question. And my second question is just to be equal, is it fair to assume that there are far more, the biggest majority right now is the gray in between there are more dangerous dogs and less quote unquote good dogs. Is it fair to assume that that applies in breeders and puppy mills and all the, you know, that not most breeders are probably not reputable. So is that across the board and not just in shelters?
0: I think so. I, I, of course, my, I can gather much larger observations and informal data by going to animal shelters and studying populations than I can from the general public. But um, yeah, You know, there's a portion of very reputable breeders. There are, you know, intermediate breeders who are doing the best they know how and doing a pretty good job. There's uh, puppy mills pumping out dogs, and there are just people in any community breeding their own dogs to other dogs, pure or mixed. And a lot of those dogs are dangerous, right? A lot of those dogs are dangerous because in a lot of higher crime areas people are favoring a dog that has a little bit more guarding tendencies mm-hmm. and can hold their own with other dogs and i say that with no judgment i say that with the knowledge that if i lived in a higher crime area i would probably not want the two you know dogs that i have now for for many reasons they wouldn't they wouldn't serve my me and my home and my community my neighborhood the way mine are suited to me here But so I think, I think that's probably dogdom. I mean, I don't, it's hard because right as a trainer, you rarely see people who don't need training because their dog's so well-behaved and so great. Right. Yeah. Um, So we're skewed and um, I don't know, but I just don't see, I don't see that huge population of really great dogs out there that are all doing well and there. Those people aren't contacting resources where I would see them. So I don't, I don't know. That's a great question.
1: I'm also wondering, like, has our idea of a good dog changed over time? You know, has our tolerance for quirks and behaviors changed in generations? You know, like what we considered a really good dog back in the 80s. Is that now a gray area dog in 2022? Because I... You know, just being in this field the past two years and working through adoptions and everything like that, the idea of what people want, to me, is very skewed. They want this, like, a a dog that doesn't exist, you know? And uh, so I'm wondering if if that has something to do with it, what your thoughts are on that.
0: So I try to, I go through, from like the 80s and early 90s, I have mostly slides and photographs of shelter populations and dogs from shelter visits and then starting probably in the mid 90s i have video footage um maybe toward the later 90s is when i have a lot of video footage and i try to go through and look at you know because you can with enough experience you can sort of snapshot a, a dog in a kennel and put them into any of the three categories of course that's confirmation bias but you know there are very sweet loving highly social dogs that you can see in shelter kennels. So I try to be objective about what I would have said was a good dog then and what I would have said is a good dog today. And what I, my criteria is the same, and that is high sociability. But what I'll tell you is that it has changed over the last few decades, not quite in the way you think, but part of the problem is we're seeing so much less sociability to humans, just sociability in general. So that trait has declined in, at least in animal shelters. And in a lot of in in breeding to good and bad breeding, so that it's a minuscule portion of the population of dogs and what happens is there are shelters in areas who have it has been so long since they've ever seen a dog with sociability that they don't even know that that can exist in terms of temperament mm-hmm. and so over time, what happens in in shelters is shelters continue uh, operating uh w- with the same criteria of placing the best dogs in their pool. And so the best dogs in any sheltered population are going to be the ones that will place with a family with young kids. And the problem is, what a lot of shelters think is the best dog in their population today would have been gray area and dangerous in the 80s and 90s,
1: uh,
0: and probably early 2000s too. And um, so we're much more the whole world right now is much more tolerant of a difficult problematic gray area borderline dog okay. much more tolerant of dangerous dogs because they are living in our midst and we don't recognize them as dangerous and so just they're they're out there so people are completely habituated to dangerous dogs and and we're all used to gray area dogs one of the problems is and you can't ever separate the trinity right the the trinity of dogdom the dog of, with his temperament and the human that he lives with or is going to live with and the environment in which he or she lives and and inseparable. And so I would say that in the 70s and 80s, it was much easier to be a dog and the environment was just much better for dogs in general, much more rural space, much less people and dogs, less pressure on dogs to be okay at the dog park, to greet every other dog on leash. There was just, you know, you just didn't have that. So I think it was easier to be a dog and and I'm talking rural, suburban and urban areas Mm -hmm. than it is today. I think it's incredibly hard to be a dog today. And with that, I think, I think there's a whole group of people who are much more tolerant of a problematic gray area dog because rescuing and adopting is much more popular right now. And part of that, is the idea that we're saving something or rescuing something to the point where the word rescue has become a noun. It it used to be a verb um, or it used to just just apply to a dog that was adopted from a rescue group as opposed to a physical shelter or a person, right? Now, a rescue implies a dog that needed rescuing from whatever situation and that the implication that goes along with the word, the noun, rescue... Is that the the dog's problematic, traumatized, and will have a lot of problems, and that we should have sympathy for for the dog? Not saying any of those things are right or wrong, but so I mean, it's a very different world right now. But what I I, I want to wa- wave my flag, and I want to say, <laughs> dogs are our dogs are are completely our choosing, and are, are we made them like? right? They're not jackals. They're not what we're going to go study in Isle Royale. They're, they're dogs. And so when we say things like, oh, well, you know, resource guarding, it's adaptive. I'm like, to, to a pet dog in a home with kids, there's nothing adaptive about it. It's, yeah. it's a trait that serves jackals and coyotes and wolves. And maybe it serves street dogs and dogs who live in larger groups, you know, loosely owned by people, but it does not serve the domestic pet companion dog in any way no aggression there's no aggression that that serves a companion dog today in almost any environment it just makes life miserable for them and very often miserable for the people and and the community we can we should be prioritizing sweet sociable sound dogs above confirmation above breed above looks even i mean like breed the nice dog with a little overbite rather than the dog with a scissor bite who is pushy out of control and easily aroused into aggression and and I don't care what you're breeding what breed so
2: how much of that what you I mean just wow like that's gonna t- I'm gonna have to replay and digest some of this information. Okay, but I too. always have more questions because I have OCD. That's a fact. Okay but <laughs> one how much, and I know it's both, but how much is nature and how much is nurture with what's going on? And two, you had started mentioning about you know shelters today, what we think is a great dog might have been a gray area dog. So, can, yeah, part two of that question is can you speak a little bit about your assessment protocol and why shelters aren't using assessment or why they are?
0: Yeah, so, um, an assessment. Any assessment protocol, and in fact, any non-protocol, but any type of assessment, even if, even if the vet tech at a shelter is eyeballing all the dogs and 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 is with all the dogs during their medical exam, that's going to be an assessment, right? Like any thing that you do with a dog, that's the same over multiple dogs. You begin to see trends, and if you follow up on the trends, you can see differences in temperament. And so, I created assess a pet and. And what a Cessapet looks to do is to put the dogs into those three categories. So, and and looking at sociability and aggression is basically all it's gonna look at. Because that's here's, here's the thing. You take a highly sociable dog and you with with, uh, with low aggression thresholds, meaning the dog's unlikely to reach an aggression threshold in its lifetime because of its temperament not because of circumstance, like not because the kids did all the right things, but because the dog has a temperament where you'd have to put so much on the dog for him to even think about, yeah, thinking about aggression. And then even when he thinks about getting aggressive, it doesn't, it's no more at worse than an air snap rather than a mauling. Okay. Yeah. And so you take those dogs and what the, 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 the thing is this, and, and I wish breeders would understand this is sociability isn't just like something we're looking for in an assessment. Sociability is the trait that makes the individual a dog stable. It gives you behavioral health. It gives you a dog that can basically cope with many different environments, good and bad, many different situations, stressful and non-stressful, and many different kinds of exercise opportunities or NOAA exercise opportunities the dog is highly sociable, has a much better chance of thriving in almost any, he, he's not going to be the boldest dog in the, in the, you know, whatever in, in the world, but he's, his, any type of anxiety or fear that he has is within the realm of being able to cope, not because mm-hmm. people did all the right things. Like it's, Sociability gives you behavioral health, the package of health. Is that nature or nurture or both? I think it's nature, but I think it's also epigenetics. Like I think it's things that happen to the mother in utero in her environment. And I think it's things that happen Mm. to the puppies very early on are just as important as who the parents and grandparents were. Mm -hmm. That's my opinion. Um, That's my observations. But dogs who have a low aggression threshold in any area whether it's deliberate, right? Whether it's a terrier who are being bred with a low threshold for dog aggression uh, in the terrier group, because a lot of them are, they're supposed to be able to spar in the ring and posture and, or fight, right? Like, you know, not that we're condoning that, but that was part of why people bred certain types. But anytime you're breeding a dog with a low threshold, whether it's dog to dog aggression, guarding aggression, whether it's um, stranger or territorial type aggression, whatever the category, what you're the package that you're getting is a dog who is less behaviorally healthy. Overall, you're going to get a dog more prone to anxiety, more prone um, to stress and fears and not being able to cope throughout different environments and with different people. I can't remember why I started.
2: Well, we were talking about assess a pet. Okay. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, we were asking
2: you like little interjections, but yes. And then how, yeah, how, what's going on now then with how we know those dogs and why we need to versus not. I I mean, our listeners might want to know the argument why people don't want to assess, but...
0: So part of what's going on right now is it, it, it has to do with, not has to do with assessments, but what you do with a dog who's dangerous in your care or what you do if you have way too many borderline dogs and not enough adopters in your shelter, which means then that all the borderline dogs who already are going to have a longer length of stay um, because of their, you know, their finite number of possibilities where they could really thrive and be successful in different environments with different people. Um, They're going to have a longer length of stay. And if 98% of the dogs in your shelter are borderline, you're going to have a hoarding situation and you're not going to have enough adopters, you know, adoptions encourage more adoptions. The more you have a population that doesn't move that, where adopters just aren't adopting fast enough, they go stale. They all get contagious uh, behaviors in the kennel where they're mm-hmm. um, spinning and, and rebounding or barking or lunging, and the the contagious behaviors with each other long term in the shelter are very uh, very problematic for the dogs and for those adopters wanting to come in and the staff trying to take care of these dogs and their their mental and behavioral and emotional quality of life health um, in the in the shelter. So. The, the problem isn't assessments. The problem isn't like, if you asked any shelter, would you like to identify you know, your dangerous dogs and would you like to identify your most adoptable? um And would you like to identify the ones that are problematic and, and try and aim them into just the right, perfect situation for success? Any shelter, I think, would say, oh my God, yes, that is our goal. But the problem is that <laughs> what do you do with the dangerous dogs? If you don't euthanize, Then you're committed to sanctuary. And most shelters that are doing adoptions or doing any intake at all are not set up for sanctuary. Most sanctuaries, to be honest, are not set up for sanctuary because sanctuary uh, is usually a non euthanasia mindset. And the problem is either you set up a sanctuary with a cutoff, meaning your sanctuary can hold 20 dogs or your sanctuary can hold 200 dogs. And that when somebody calls with a 201th dog, you say, I'm sorry, we can't take, we can no longer take dogs until one of our dogs die. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but most people who have a sanctuary aren't good at turning away um, or capping it off. And certainly if you cap off and you stop accepting new dogs, you will li- run out of money. And then, and, and it's very expensive taking care of um, aggressive dogs. And,
1: and, and then there's also, I mean, you know, Kati and I have discussed this previously, you know, behavioral euthanasia versus quality of life in these sanctuary situations. Like some of these aggressive dogs, their mindset is, it's just, it's not fair for them to live that way. And, you know, so there's that whole aspect yeah. of it too. Like, of course, like, yeah. you don't want to have to put down animals. You don't want to put them to sleep, but you know, is a sanctuary life, the life for every dog, like those dogs that are stressed, those dogs, you know, like that's, they don't want to live like that. We just have to be ones to make that decision, unfortunately.
0: Right. But the problem is like, let's say you take, you know, Joe Schmo shelter in Joe Schmo, you know,
1: Wisconsin. I love that place. I love that favorite place to go. Favorite
0: vacation
2: place. Yeah, it's a
0: good place. Um, (laughs) So Joe Schmo shelter in Joe Schmo, Wisconsin. And let's say, um, you know, they've been operating and doing whatever they've been doing, and then they get a new director in and a new manager. and they're like, "God, you know, you know what? we we're getting so many bites to our volunteers and staff, and we have so many returns for biting. We will really want to set up some sort of an assessment. We really want to get better at what we're doing. And here's where it gets tricky. So Joshmo shelter says, okay, let's let's get let's train our staff and really understand. Um, how to implement any any protocol for assessment doesn't matter whose or, or which one. And so I'm going to tell you right now that Joshua, Joshua Animal Shelter is going to have majority of gray area dogs and a pretty high percentage of dangerous dogs and very few adoptable good dogs safe appropriate because those dogs get adopted really quickly so you'll you won't have that many. And if you're not if you're not triaging your incoming dogs, every space that was Open by adopted an adoptable dog being adopted out might get filled incoming with an adoptable dog, but more likely it's going to get filled with gray area or dangerous because that has a, that's a bigger population. So anyway, over time, Joe Schmo Shelter, in the absence of doing, um, you know, whatever screening, are going to have the majority of, of borderline and dangerous dogs. So you go in and you say, okay, here, this is how you're going to assess. This is how you can put the dogs into those categories. And so let's say they have 50 dogs and let's say, and this is not, I'm not being unrealistic, but let's say 30 of those dogs are borderline. They need just the right home, just the right person and, and some luck for them not to bite and for them to actually be successful dog and community. And let's say of the third, third, what did I say? 30 or 35, 30, 30, let's say so there's 30 20 left. Four. Okay. Of 20 left, let's say um, 12 are dangerous and let's say eight are safe. So then what does the shelter do? Does the shelter say, well, okay, well, immediately we're going to will euthanize the 12 dangerous dogs. And I'm telling you, you know, your volunteers and your community gets a wind that you're going to euthanize 12 or more dogs. And because maybe of your 20 uh, your 30 gray area dogs, maybe 25 have been there for 3 years or more. And I'm telling you they might have started out gray area but right now they're suffering. They have no quality of life and they're not getting better. They're probably irredeemably kennel crazy. Mm -hmm. So then what do you do? What do you, what do you, you can't find sanctuaries for all of those. If you're confronted with euthanasia, shelters can't do it. Even if they wanted to do it, there's a community and a rescue and a volunteer outrage. And so, and we're afraid of social media. I'm not, that's not a judgment. I have been (laughs) afraid of social media. And, you know, if you're a big organization or you're even a community shelter, you do not want to have to try to defend what you're doing. It is really hard to convince people that you are humane, loving, caring, and you're doing it in the best interest of the dogs when you're talking about euthanasia.
2: This is a pickle and a half because yeah, there is no good answer. I live in Austin. I love how idealistic Austin is about animal and I love how much the community cares, but you know, we're struggling. We're having a hard time in a, I'm pretty sure still no kill city, meaning that we don't euthanize for time and space. Yeah. But we have dogs that yep. are, you know, would decimate another dog. Yeah, I would de- would decimate another dog. They can live fine in a home with this one kind of person. And we're holding them and they've been in a kennel for two years. And the dog, it's not that that dog isn't having, it's not that the dog is, you know, losing weight and having a horrible time. They're not they're getting walks. We have a huge volunteer base. Like people are incredibly kind. Austin, you put out a call. We need help people show up. But at some point I, I'm like, we're moving air around because every month it's like, we need more. We have 90 pop-up crates, please. And it's like people are running or free adoption events, free, no price, $0. Well, how many of those dogs come back? What was the investment in that dog? What, it's like we're just it's whack-a-mole and i'm I'm confused I don't understand what the long-term game is and and I think Austin's doing a great job so I can't imagine uh in a place that isn't
0: yeah well and you know what is a great job is it where is the is the barometer the uh euthanasia rate the save rate the live rate or you know can we have rates that guide our decisions about living dogs and and living pet owners and living neighborhoods right like it, what what is the success and um you know if if there's a dog that would kill another dog if he got loose i don't want the dog in my neighborhood i don't want him coming into my community don't want to meet him on my hiking trails don't want to meet him in the vet you know waiting room and uh, ask anyone anyone who's ever owned a dog for any length of time have you ever lost the dog for a second has the leash broken or the collar popped or has the dog jumped out of your car earlier than what you thought? And everyone says, yes, it, all professional trainers, you know, included in that. We all, we all have these little uh, slip ups with our our dogs. They're not, we never manage a hundred percent no matter how hard we try. And um, lack of management is okay if the dog is safe and lack of management turns into a disaster, a community disaster when it's not. And um
2: how do we make these decisions then when they're not objective, it's one person or, or a couple people in one place versus another, everyone's making their own decisions, having their own lines drawn in the sand, and then we don't make them with other people, right, we're just making them with animals. So it starts to get ethical, you know, in terms of like this big existential metaphysical question of like, how we make those how, how we choose.
0: Yeah. And, and I don't know, like, how do we repair the the system? And I think really the best way to go forward is to uh, really, and (laughs) here you might want to bleep this entire next sentence out, but the best way forward says this is to be breeding really nice, stable, sociable dogs of, you know, by breeding X dog that is successful and sweet and safe to Y dog who is you know, successful and sweet and safe. And if we start breeding nice dogs, then a people be like, well, look, that's a really nice dog. And here, here's, here's, this is my most brilliant idea today. (laughs) Okay. Are you ready? Oh, born ready. Okay. I mean, like one of my things, one of my inventions that I think is really going to be brilliant. And it's not what I'm about to talk about, but it's a bunch of bananas and each banana ripens the next day as opposed to all at once. Okay. That brilliant fucking invention. Why isn't uh, that
2: made now? uh, Right? Because we
0: all have that six hour window of the perfect banana. Okay. Mind blowing. Yeah. we We need to be breeding nice dogs. And that means I don't care if your nice, healthy dog is a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel, and yours is a, you know, a Shepherd Collie mix. Like, I don't really care what they are as long as whelping is safe like if you have a nice dog and you have a nice dog let's start breeding them together i know then all the the purebred people are like well you don't know the ancestors and you got to look at this and it's like okay but we're starting here we're going to start here and then and in five generations we'll know we'll have all the information that you have today for all your purebreds but anyway we need to start breeding
2: really nice dogs which is a and- lot to say from someone who spent so much time as a shelter so i'm really listening
0: yeah and but here here's the most brilliant part of that you the breed like people say, Sue, what are you breeding? And I will say the, the breed uh, is called a rescue. Mm. So people are buying puppies and somebody says, um, and what kind of dog? And they say it's a rescue and it's that uh, everyone's happy. Everyone's happy. You like it?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like it. I, I was going mean, to say, I love it. I was going to say that I want, it's 2022 and I don't need to peel my own orange and someone should invent a way that I can eat an orange without having to fucking peel it. But your idea way beats the orange.
0: Um, but anyway, like I honestly, I, I think what is the way out of this quagmire of, of it unethical inhumane for, I'm, and when I say inhumane, I'm not just talking about for the dogs I'm talking about for the community, for the pet owners, you go on any of the Facebook groups for people who have had to do their own behavioral euthanasia and you will see suffering. You'll just see suffering from people who've tried to do the right thing and have ended up having to euthanize and they are devastated for life. They'll blame themselves forever. I mean, it's the pain from some of these Facebook sites where people are getting together to talk about how they've had to euthanize an untenable, dangerous animal after usually some pretty horrible incidents um, and how bad they feel. it's enough to make you want to change things. But anyway, I don't know how to fix what's already happening in our shelters. And I'm not sure it's fixable. I'm not because there's no 15 second elevator message. You can't walk into an elevator and say, Hi, Oprah, it's so nice to meet you. I want to talk about why we need to euthanize more dogs in our shelters, right? Like, like, you can't start there. And you can't end there, right? Like, there's so much more going on. But I think. I think we do have to prioritize nice dogs and breeding nice dogs, healthy, nice dogs, and, and not for any other reason, except that when you breed for a really healthy, nice dog, you get a dog who is happier and healthier and can thrive. And for the dog's sake as well to adjust to the environment. And it's really hard to be a dog today. We need to be breeding dogs, not for the special purpose of what they were created for a hundred years ago. We need to be breeding a dog that is got high sociability to people and other dogs and that does not mean that they pull and drag you to other dogs or people it just means that they have you know they're very hard to push into any aggressive state they have behavioral health they can be left alone they can they can go on trips they can deal with different environments and different people uh they can cope with a certain amount of stress and uh we we breed those dogs and and i don't know i think that would and ignore everything
2: else to we the best have- And maybe also addressing the, the accidental or purposeful breeding in high crime areas that, that is making, Mm -hmm. you know, like maybe we support people, Uh, you know, of course I always am like, and let's all live in rainbows and ride unicorns. But, but I, 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 that always, the for-profit or the communities that are ignored are still going to be there. And maybe if we took your approach, eventually, we wouldn't have this other problem. We could put all our resources to addressing mm-hmm. those issues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, the next step.
0: Yeah, you know. Mm. Um, well,
2: I learned today. Yeah, can you keep teach classes uh, to just the animal that changes your community? Is what I was going to ask.
1: I learned. Um, my mind is spinning and turning, and just so many, so many things. So. Tell me how, how can I be in touch with you? How can our community be in touch with you? Find out more about you and all of these amazing things. Where can we find you?
0: Well, I have my website with its narcissistic name, (laughs) sue sternberg.com, but it is sue sternberg.com. And, um, I'm, I'm not doing a lot of seminars right now. Um, I'm writing currently writing a book on, um, handling for nose work. Cause I'm really into the sport of scent work. Ooh, I think, love that. Yeah. I think um, nose work is one of the most important um, activities that we can participate in with our dogs, any dog uh, in any, any community. And, um, and I think it helps our dogs today thrive in environments where it's really hard for them to be dogs. So anyway, I'm really into nose work. And um, so no, I've been writing that, but um, I mean, Um, My email is Sue Sternberg at iCloud and iCloud.com and people can email me. And if, um, if I'm in a busy spell and you don't hear from me in a, in a week, you'd email again with the subject heading. I think maybe this went into spam last time (laughs) (laughs) instead of you haven't responded to me or whatever, but I usually, I usually respond, but sometimes I I'm I get delayed and then the emails get buried. And then
1: listen, that's fair. And everyone That's should, buy. you're not just sitting around waiting for our emails to come in. So. <laughs> Everybody should buy assessing aggression thresholds in dogs,
2: um, because it does tell you quite a bit about assess a pet, Sue's assessment protocol. And especially if you volunteer with a rescue group, or you own a rescue group, or you help out at an animal shelter or humane society, etc. it'd be, and especially if they don't assess for the very reasons that Sue sort of called out, they don't want to have to make hard decisions or no, even. Or they don't think it's fair, or maybe they don't think it's fair as a way not to have to make the hard decisions. I think just taking a look at that book, buying it, reading it, will give you some understanding of why it's actually essential for the betterment not only of people but of dogs.
0: It, it also has kind of an overview of what's been happening in the shelter system and and for a while, so it's helpful for a bigger perspective. And then a book that I wrote in like two thousand three, I, I wrote it for the, the public to. It's called Successful Dog Adoption, and it's literally a step-by-step guide for them to go into a shelter and try and come home with a dog that is safe and suitable. But the that book still um, still holds true today. There's very little in it I would change. And it also talks a lot about relevant, bigger picture stuff that still holds true today, except it's a little bit more exaggerated today. But So Successful Dog Adoption, I think it's available on Amazon for like a dollar.
2: Well, and- anybody who I will say this, I'm making this grand proclamation. If, if, if when this episode airs for the rest of the year of 2022, if you leave a review of the animal that changed you, we will send you one of Sue's books. Anybody who leaves a review for the year of 2022 will get a book by Sue Sternberg, one of these two books. And all you have to do in the review is put like a poop emoji or a dog emoji. So we know that it's about this. But I will send you a book personally myself. That's how much I want you to read these books. Thank you. I mean, the
0: last thing I'll say is that I really feel like the shelter's role has got to get away from adoptions. And it's got to move way more into the community. So I've always felt this, but the shelter's role in the community is to promote and help maintain a humane society. Not that you go to the humane society, get a dog, but a humane society. Like that's our job in the shelter is to go out into the community, help people keep their pets before they need the resources of the shelter. We need to be helping, whether it's financial, whether it's behavioral advice, whether it's training, whether it's supplies, we need to be helping people in the community be the best caregiver they can possibly be and very often, especially in today's world, they're going to need help from someone, and uh, it should be us. You shouldn't have to be rich to have a great dog or cat in your life. It's Hell not yes, it's not that expensive to have a dog or cat. Some of the you know extra things, the the catastrophic veterinary or life circumstances, we need help, and that's where the shelter should be, putting all of his resources into helping the people and the pets in the community that are already there with the concentration being on neighborhoods and and communities and, and humaneness and how to model, model care and humaneness to uh, everyone. And that that's the role of the shelter. The role of shelter shouldn't be how many adoptions, what's our live release rate. Like, you know, I would count it as a live release rate. If you went into the community, you paid for somebody's dog, and transported them to be spayed or to have the leg, uh, repaired that was broken when the animal was accidentally hit by a car, um, and not judge somebody cause their animals hit by a car, but, um, and not judge them for not having the $2,000 to repair the leg, but in instead helping them so that it doesn't happen again and that they can get through it. And so, but we are valuing the relationship. We are valuing the life of the dog and we're valuing that them and, and that Partnership. So anyway, that's that's what I think for sheltering, and then and then we've gotta we've gotta all be breeding healthier dogs, physically and uh, emotionally and behaviorally. And that means prioritizing sociability. The other last thing I'll say is whether you want to learn about assessments or not. If you just love dogs, I made talking about OCD. I made a <laughs> three hour forty minute. It's three DVDs, or you can stream it. It's called the Ethogram. It's a very dry name, but what it is, I mean, I took every discrete dog behavior and I divided it up so you could see it and then see it in slow motion and see them uh, in bulk in different dogs doing them. This is all from shelter evaluation, but this applies to all dogs. And then at the end of the, the Ethogram DVD set, I took known dogs with bite histories And showed this, the suite of behaviors, you could see it play out, which are common to dogs who have bitten and which are common to dogs that haven't. So you can, you can teach yourself to see the nuances of behavior that give you a better overall picture of uh, behavioral health of aggression, of the dog starting to head towards an aggression threshold, which means you can get them back off of that if you can recognize the journey.
1: Oof, I, some people might watch The Godfather with three hours. but not many. I was going to say, like, not this me. is my Friday night. This is going to be my Friday night movie night with popcorn and a cocktail. Our husbands <laughs> will not be joining us.
2: No. <laughs> They'll be so angry. Thank you so much, Sue. Thank, Thank you, you guys, guys so Sue.
1: much for all your
0: positivity and your energy. It was just great. You're a rock star. No. So keep doing what you're doing, if I can help in any way. Thank you again for having me.
2: Thank you for tuning in to The Animal That Changed You. We'll see
1: you next week. We hope you subscribe to this show and leave a review, tell your people, and become our friend. Follow us on Instagram at The Animal That Changed You and at Better Together Dog Rescue. We're here for you, and we're here for your animals. Oh. For more great iRoll podcasts, visit iRulePod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D
2: dot oh.